Book One, Water, Chapter Six, Imprisoned. The gang happened upon an Earth Kingdom village occupied by Fire Nation soldiers. When a young Earthbender is taken prisoner in the middle of the night, Katara decides to take matters into her own hands. Welcome back to Storybenders. I'm Abria Iyengar. And I'm Josh Arkin. Today we're talking about episode six, Imprisoned, and the use of prison as a symbol for complex systems of both external and internal coercion and conquest. This... Wow. Yeah, this episode centered on heroism and breaking out of prison, and it's not just a physical one. Yeah, that's in there, but it's more importantly about the mental prisons that are built by oppression and like internally maintained by hopelessness. It also proffers this interesting meta-narrative prison break for Katara from the tropes that sort of confine her and consign her to like sidekickdom. Mm. Yeah, so we're going to look at prison in a lot of different contexts here. And first, the most obvious one. Yeah. We'll talk about a physical prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, This episode features a physical prison. It's a floating prison. It's a boat. We find this out like midway through the episode. They're keeping all the earthbenders of this village stored away on a boat where there's no earth nearby for them to bend. Mm -hmm. And I think we see it as the floating prison itself as a greater symbol. Yeah, this floating prison as a symbol, it's this prison, but it's got open walls that are out on the water. You have this ability to like see out into the world and your vector to escape. But knowing that there's nowhere to go, uh, I think it really like hammers home this idea of like hopelessness and sort of the trappings of mental prisons and like building your own walls and keeping yourself confined Mm. based on like things that are bigger than like giant walls of metal. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that they make such a point here to say, oh, it's all metal. Yeah. There's nothing you earthbenders can do <laughs> about it. There's nothing you could, n- an earthbender could never bend metal. <laughs> and it's true for now. For <laughs> yeah. Now. I super love that, this, that they're doing a good job in the narrative of setting up like the Fire Nation prides itself so much on its sort of technological leaps forward. And the fact that it's bending is the only like generative one. Mm. So this idea that like they're bending is part of the reason that they are technologically more advanced. Yeah, so it's powering their metal, which is defeated exactly. the earthbenders. Yeah. And it's kind of defeated everyone. Like, yeah. yeah what are you going to do? Like bone, bone spears versus like a tank. Yeah. <laughs> what one wins every time. Yeah. Well, of course, we know that we have a certain character coming next next season. <laughs> Who could it be? Top Beifong. Lover. Oh, so good. Yeah. Anyway, also featured on this prison is George Takei. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. Like, Hello. I guess his name is the warden on here, but it's less that like George Takei is playing a character called the warden and more of like the warden is George Takei. <laughs> yeah, George Takei is in this. <laughs> He's such a goofy little gift. And I think it's pretty fun. We were kind of laughing about the idea that like it is informed that like the warden is super ruthless. Like yeah. Tyro mentions it a couple times. And and then everything you ever see from George Takei as the warden is actually like pretty silly. It's all bits. It's, it's all goofiness. He's all bits. The bison buffalo bit. Oh my God. Also, that's like a super American joke. And I realized that. That's just, I don't know, yeah. if, like international audiences care about the fact that like 
we call bison buffalo and that's like a i don't know it was yeah. like a really dumb goof and yeah. i appreciated it a ton yeah it's definitely an american joke yeah and then he throws the guy off the ship and he's like go get the captain and this, you know oh, God, he, he yeah. just threw the captain off the ship <laughs> all right also oh and the very last gag of once he's thrown off of the ship that he's apparently the he can't warden swim. yeah he's the warden of a a floating prison that can't swim irony yeah goofy but for the most part, this is a very serious episode. Yeah. I think it's important that we have like George Takei as like a moment of levity because this is actually pretty serious. And when we talk about like what a symbol is, I'm going to try to do my best to circumvent the like Webster's Dictionary defines mm-hmm. a symbol. But like a symbol conceptually is a, a clear depiction uh, a a crystallization of a far more complex or abstract concept or a set of ideas Mm. so this idea of like prison like a cell that you can't leave representing systems of subjugation and oppression is just there is more to the physical prison in this world than just the one that we see in the later acts of the episode and there's the manifestation of a physical prison in the form of the fire nation soldiers in the town yeah and how they sort of enact their will and they treat they're basically like law enforcement but they're not you know they're, they're 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 colonizers they're terrorists yeah And there's, you know, we see the economic subjugation at the beginning of the episode where basically they knock on the door of Haru's mother and ask for more taxes. Taxes? What are you talking about? They're just stealing. Yeah. They're stealing from the people. Oh, it was also like the like, it'd be a shame if something happened here. Like that is for sure like a clear analog to like mafia protection money. So yeah, we have the sense of like Fire Nation, not just as colonizers, but as like organized crime on top of that like oppressive police state presence in the city yeah and let's be frank about what that fire nation secreting haru away at midnight image evokes oh yeah 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 that is dead ass knee molars the the quote from the holocaust that like first they came for the socialists and i didn't do anything because i wasn't wasn't a socialist socialist. yeah yeah but that idea of secret soldiers coming in the middle of the night to carry people off is deeply evocative of important points in history in which terror and fascism walk hand in hand Mm. and like as much as i'm like i love a fire nation like it's cool blah 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 like we have to know and be aware of what they are and what they represent in this world and i think the writers have done amazing they've taken amazing pains to both be like honest about what that is while not trying to be super dour about it and like yeah. scare off a young audience that still primarily wants to be entertained by this story. Yeah, but clearly they want those themes to feel enriched by the real world counterparts. Absolutely. Because they want to give their ch- children audience the opportunity to learn these lessons through the story. Exactly. Which is awesome. And it's a huge part of why we love the show so yeah. much and why oh we feel gosh. like it makes sense that we're sitting here today <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. And we super appreciated and enjoyed the little bit of bait and switch that scene had where we watched the soldiers walk up with their lanterns mm-hmm. and then we get the cutaway of the gang sleeping in the barn and then the knock is actually at Haru's mother's home instead mm-hmm. of the gang. So mm-hmm. it was like, it was a cute little stylistic choice that I feel like every now and then the directors, they just like doing cute stuff and yeah. playing with expectations and doing a little bit more. It's not adult and super high level. Like this is yeah, a high it's a classic art. bait and switch. Yeah, but but it's great. There's no sense of like 
them wasting this good this good good like narrative juice on children like it's a it's a nice primer yeah and another interesting thing about that exact scene is it shocked me you know that old man is so quick they give no context to why he's so quick to be like that's him that's the earthbender yeah even after haru saved him from the collapsing mine yes okay so i think that this is the perfect time for us to get into our next sort of prison and the the one that we really want to alight on and the one that we really want to dig deep on which is that understanding of mental prisons and the old man in our act one we've mentioned in other episodes that like our break into two usually by that point the the show has given us a preview or shown us what the theme or the main idea of the episode is Mm -hmm. and i think the old man that snitch old man is our encapsulation of this that it's not that he does this thing that's bizarre and and isn't understandable but we're getting our first real understanding of what internalized subjugation looks like what a mental prisoner acts like and then later on in act two when we meet Tyro, Haru's father, we understand even better, like when Katara is freaking out and saying, like, well, what's the plan? Like, are we are we gonna have a rebellion, like a revolt? When he says outright that the goal is to survive, mm-hmm. we understand what that old man is trying to do and trying mm-hmm. to say and trying to teach that this sort of turning and doing things that seem outside of what the correct steps are. Or what's good. Yeah, or... what's good, what's right, what's fighting and battling back against your oppressors. For a group of people that have been beaten down for a war that's gone on for a century, it's just about survival at this point. And we understand that this mafioso Nazi occupation, Haru's mom says it's been going on for over five years at this point. Exactly. So this old man, even though he was crushed by earth in the mine and Haru saved him, basically he's submissive to his own mental prison, the understanding that if he doesn't snitch to the Fire Nation, it's going to come back on him in some awful way exactly and he's motivated by fear and that's the fire nation's power exactly and it's not personal weakness we're not saying that this is like an individual's moral failing it is that systems of power seek via vectors of like physical imprisonment and economic subjugation and like persistent terrorism and the threat of violence at all times it creates a world in which like it's the prisoner's dilemma Mm-hmm. where you know that the the most optimal thing to do is to act in everyone's best interests. But the practical thing to do, the way to survive, is to do what's best for you in that moment, even if it throws other people under the bus. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see with this old man. And it seems a little, like, wacky, but I love that they are introducing children to this conceit early on. And they never really paint him as a victim. Like, there's no, like, them going back and yelling at the old man or, no. like, having any sort of, like weird interactions with him because it's just a part of this world and it's what the gang is seeking to undo by virtue of them being there and beginning their liberation efforts yeah and when the warden reacts to katara's big soapbox speech yes he states this philosophy outright he says you thought the few inspirational words could change these people that's pretty good i tried that's pretty good but yeah you know his, i'm gonna stop trying now no they, <laughs> they were broken long ago Yay! <laughs> <laughs> that was for you i liked it thank you but yeah you know katara in that moment where she you know gets herself captured gets on the boat gives that big speech Mm -hmm. and is met with blank stares closed eyes heads turned away she and the audience sees firsthand the mental toll of generations of oppression and how much stronger 
a mental prison can really be even compared to a physical one. Absolutely. And it feels like such a nice turning on the head of a show that would at any other point be satisfied that like, we know that as soon as Qatar is able to get there and give the speech, that's going to be the thing. Mm. Uh, I love that that's not the climactic moment. It's a little bit past that. And yeah. it's about learning more about the systems that were in place that they heard about and experienced. And Qatar and Sokka did have experienced a lot of like this Fire Nation problem, but in a different way and on a different level. And now with them being a little older and seeing it for themselves with eyes that are mature enough to like really get what's going on, that it takes a little bit more. Like it's just, it's not a bunch of words. Yeah. You have to undo the brainwashing of decades. It's heavy stuff, man. It really is. And I, I think that's why it's so important and telling that Haru, the son of the, of Cairo is the first earthbender to throw coal at the warden after Katara's speech. And it's it's more of something we were saying a few episodes ago about how Katara and the gang are at the heart of the rebellion. Yeah, they have to be. Yeah, because they're the children. You know, it's not that the adults of the world are incompetent. Yes. But it's that it's the energy of the young people. They're young enough to not have learned and acculturated themselves to the prisoner mentality. But... They st- they have this energy, this new this breath of fresh air, this this new opportunity, this new mentality. Yeah. To bring to these older people, it's wonderful to see in this episode through the character of Tyro, yes. whose voice is just butter, Ooh, buttery voice, butter daddy. We love voice. it, butter dad. <laughs> That's his name now. I'm gonna cross Tyro out of my memory, close my heart to it. <laughs> But yeah, it's special to see that the young people are stepping up. Yeah. And it feels very good. Like in that same way that we were talking about that it just so happens to be, it's not that it just so happens that the youth are the people at the center of this rebellion. Like they have to be for an important reason. It's not incompetence. It's that they still have hope and God, what a deep and terrible like realization to have that like the fundamental difference is just... They're not lack worn of experience. Down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lack of experience and lack of worldliness is actually a benefit and not like a thing yeah. to be overcome yeah. in the series. It can be a power. Yeah. Oh man. And that's a special message. It's a unique message. It really is. And I think it's safe to say that everyone in this episode deals with some version of a mental prison. Mm. And as we were talking about it earlier, getting ready for this episode, we definitely talked about how Sokka is still in that like sort of proto characterization. Most of most of his experiences are played for laughs, like him being self-conscious about his ears and the subtle like nod towards his not being appreciated for his hunting and gathering abilities. Yeah, with the nuts. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely going to come to a head in a later episode. Yeah. But we're starting, we're getting the seeds, <laughs> nuts, seeds. We're getting groundwork laid for that now that's going to justify that and make future points of conflict make a little more sense. But Zuko shows up. He is the last beat of the episode. Yeah. And even though we're supposed to feel like the menace and encroaching danger as he holds up Katara's necklace and we get the like eye narrowing, which he's is on like the trail. Yeah, yeah. He's there yeah. and he's closer. Yeah. I think this is a really nice callback to our, what we're talking about in episode three, when we talk about the lie, like mm. the lie that a, a character has to believe in order to keep moving forward. 
Zuko's lie is that much stronger and is a prison for him because mm. he's built this fiction around himself. His cell, his walls are around this idea about the very specific terms of the restoration of his honor. Mm. And he's like slavishly held to a specific course of action. He has to chase down the gang. He has to get the avatar. That's the only way for him to free himself. I love that. And I think it's so great that just one wordless image of him kind of subliminally drives that home. Yep. The concept of mental prison, just Zuko. (laughs) 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 But it's doing double duty. Like you said, because at the same time, it's like scary. Yeah. Oh God. And he's got Katara's necklace, which we know she cares about a lot. Oh, the memes. The memes. So that brings us to a third context for what a prison can be that we wanted to discuss which is a meta-narrative prison yeah. or a story prison. And, you know, we're six episodes now into a story where it's been clearly established that Aang, who is the Avatar, mm-hmm. the titular last airbender, <laughs> is meant to be the hero of our story. Yeah. Our audience instincts have kicked in. We've yeah. seen heroes' stories all the time. We're grown up on them. So we expect to see Katara, for example... As some form of love interest or sidekick or, you know, now we've discussed her as a peer mentor and a motherly figure. But here in this episode, we love it. We love that Katara is breaking out of her meta-narrative prison here. Yes. And repositioning herself as the hero of the episode. And it's amazing to see. You know, she also reframes herself here or the writers reframe her as co-hero of the story. And I think we've said this before that our expectation is that she's going to be 1A, 1B alongside Aang. And I think here in Imprisoned in episode six is the first time we really see that. Yeah. It's nicely stated outright in the episode recap up top where we're reminded where Grand Grand mentions that Katara's like fate is intertwined with Aang. Mm -hmm. A recommitment to the notion that like the season goal is to get them both to the Northern Water tribe for both of them to train with a waterbending master. That, like, even the show is going out of its way to explicitly remind the audience that, like, this isn't Aang's story and his friends will be there to bolster him and, like, carry him through. Uh, yeah, it's all of their it's stories. It's all of their stories. Yeah, and, and in order to do that in this episode, the writers made a distinct choice here, which is they placed Aang into the background of, of this episode. And I think that brings up an important question, which is, was that a good idea? So... I think the question of is it a good is I don't think the question is yeah please. was it a good idea okay I think the question is was it intentional mm-hmm. because uh, to me this feels like a weird misfire on characterization for Aang that like we dealt with him and his lie in the Southern Era Temple where he comes to the realization that like his presence in the world comes with like this great cost and that he kind of needs to sober himself up from this, like, let's ride around the world and ride on and touch a bunch of weird animals. Mm-hmm. And it felt like we were moving forward. And now we have this, like, weird regression of Aang where he just would rather, like, poot around a little butterfly than deal with the subjugation of an entire village. Like, it feels really weird and bad. And I feel like at at its best, this is... The writers not quite knowing what they want to do with Aang Mm -hmm. and it'll be clarified over time and like sort of sharpened and narrowed and he'll be the Aang that we know and expect. At worst, I feel like the writers 
are maybe struggling to figure out how to hand off the hero reins to Katara and let her lead in the story without handing a literal idiot ball to Aang and making him just an unlikable scrub (laughs) for the episode in order for Katara to shine, which is more problematic in my mind. It's a fair point. You know, just to counterpoint that, I think it actually is useful to present a more broad strokes, two-dimensional version of Aang hanging it up in the background of the episode. You know, it paints his quirky, childish flaws, as they might be considered, in a plainly observable light. Like, mm-hmm. he's not the focus of the episode, and so it it's not, like, structured around his wants or needs as a character. It's just there he is, in the background of the episode, being kind of a goof, being kind <laughs> of a goofy idiot. And it allows for Katara's hero's journey to take center stage in this specific episode. And I'm optimistic that going forward, the writing team will f- figure out how to balance the two heroes' arcs together within the episode more efficiently. Wait, so you agree that they did a bad job of it? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I feel like I'm just Regina Georging you, like, so you agree. Hold on. <laughs> I'm willing to submit that I may or may not agree. No. I, no. Fair. But I think... Setting up Aang as overly childish here still gives him room to grow throughout the context of the first season and and like have his more full arc. So it's doing some characterization for Aang in the background here Mm -hmm. while still letting Katara take center stage. That's my counterpoint. Although now I'm forced to submit that (laughs) maybe you're right. (laughs) I can't imagine a debate that I win (laughs) against you. Oh my god! I, I we'll think, try again next time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you make a fair point, though, about thank you casting Aang's immaturity and contrasting it against Katara's like immediate sense of purpose. Because when we were watching this, I was also really grumpy about Katara's sort of at pushiness. Yeah, but yeah, at at the start with her pushiness with Haru and kind of like hunting him down and stalking him and goading him about his ability, even though she absolutely should have understood the stakes for non-firebenders in a world that's run by fi- the Fire Nation. Yeah, I mean, all the, the la- firebenders took her whole family. Thank you. Yeah. She's the last waterbender in the Southern Water Tribe for a reason, yeah. because they took and exterminated and imprisoned all the other ones. So it feels like a weird thing that they did where they just sort of handed her this like dummy stick, like here, yeah. you do this weird goofy thing. But I do like that her immediate reaction is to like. When oh, she learns that they took yes, Haru. Yes. Her once, yes. Once she learns the, of, of all of that, she immediately holds the blame for it and seeks to maturely move forward and like correct it where she can and leave this area better than when they found it, which is an instinct I still don't think Aang yeah. has. And she, yeah. And she and she doesn't wallow. Yeah. She, you know, she goes, oh, this is all my fault. I have to do something. Yeah. And they, and she immediately takes action and becomes like an active effector of the world. Yes. Instead of a reactive. And that's another thing. When we talk about like heroes and what happens with heroines specifically, Mm -hmm. this is my big problem with when we talk about Rogue One and my big problem with, yeah, we had Jin as like a female like lead, 
but she is reactive. She's reactionary the entire time. And a protagonist that doesn't choose their own path is not a protagonist. Mm. They're just a person that things happen to. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice to see that Katara is the driver of action as the female lead in this episode and this series going forward. So I super appreciated that. I just think it had this like funny, weird, bumpy start that like I bumped really hard on because I think specifically, and the reason I'm saying I so much is that like, this is a berserk button for me as a like a female consuming media yeah. that like I am sensitive to like that delicate balance of what are they going to do with a female lead? Is she going to pass the Bechdel test? Like all of these like things that are built into having what I'm, what I assume I, I don't know what the population of the writer's room is, but I know that the credited writers on these are, are dudes. Mostly male. Yeah. Male. So just sort of always being worried about the things that male writers will put a like will put on and put a female lead through is just a it's a thing that yeah. is very close to my heart and I react very strongly to. But it's exciting that they mid episode here they recover and yeah. they, they paint Katara in this light. Absolutely. And I think it's important to point out that her hero turn here connects back to the very beginning of the series. Hmm. <gasps> The extended title sequence in the pilot episode. Yes. The, the Katara voiceover that I read word for word. In God, yeah. Sorry, I just remembered it because yeah. I remembered your voice. Yeah. <laughs> the, the intro that we're talking about, it framed Katara as a key perspective character. And that's what we were excited about. It promised in a meta narrative sense or in a storytelling structure sense. Yeah. That we would see the world through her eyes and her actions in this series. That was what we took from it. The fact that the intro was... Me and my brother, my grandma told me, you know, I still have hope in the Avatar. We were expecting yes. from that that she would take an active role in the series. And this episode makes good on that meta narrative promise and it subverts our audience expectations. Katara is no longer just a love interest or a sidekick. And that's important because episode four has that the entire like attention fight between Aang and Katara where we Mm -hmm. start to see like the proto development of like romantic feelings Mm -hmm. in Aang's direction towards Katara which is immediate like it those are the first steps in building a love interest and the relegation of and we're not against that yeah there's nothing wrong with that but it it sucks when that becomes like the primary totality of her characterization exactly which we're so happy to see that it's not here yes we can say it blankly, and I will now. <laughs> Katara is a hero in this story. Absolutely. And she will be for the entire series. Yeah. So that's basically all of our thoughts on prisons in this episode. We talked about physical prisons. We talked about mental prisons. We talked about the concept of a meta narrative prison. Yes. A storytelling structure prison that characters can often be labeled into archetypal roles. And I think that's something that this show does so well almost across the board and we see it here very clearly with Katara but I think we'll continue to note it in future episodes all of the characters seem to reject pure archetype and they always subvert it in one way or the other yeah absolutely which is awesome but there's still other things in this episode that I want to talk about and we're going to begin with the absolute play of the game Mm -hmm. Momo is outstanding momo owns in this episode he's so adorable he has so many great moments when he's crashing the rock on the stone to see if it's a peanut or not every time he crashes it, <laughs> there's a giant boom and he's like what is this me am i doing this <laughs> he's just grappling with his own yeah. power like i have become dead. no it's an earthbender in the background yes oh my god and then the cute little uh, moment of momo the earthbender when the rock finally gets raised when ang finally does his job uh, oh yeah see that's an example of 
levity in the episode being effective, I it, think. It was done well by yeah. having the like our dumb dumb guards believe that Momo was Oh, the- that lemur's an earthbender. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, No, the girl. <laughs> yeah. Like that felt good. I still am pretty like I'm gonna dig my heels in on Aang being very blasé and sort of being like, oh, that's what was the line? He was like, oh, that you're spoiling all the you're fun taking of the it. fun out of it. Yeah. And cool. they're even like, what the fun of us letting Katara be captured by Nazi Thank Fire you. Nation people? What, are you what a weird about? nightmare for a boy who should know better. Like I'm taking your point more and more. Yeah. It just, <laughs> it just feels bad for this to be Aang's tack after him seeing the literal genocide of his people. Yeah. Like that feels wild. And how does a How does a 12 year old forget that quickly? It's you true. Know what I mean, no, it's fair. But of course we have we have more hope for Aang going forward. But maybe maybe a misfire here, and I think it's fair to point that out. And we want to be as critical as we can. Exactly, like we are full of effusive praise for the writers and uh, story runners here. I think that yeah, that there's nothing wrong with also lending a critical eye to some of the things that just didn't hit as well. And I think it's fair to say that being a little bit too too much two dimensional with Aang. Mm could be a fatal flaw of the live action show as well. <sighs> yeah. That's a real scare that they're going to miss the mark on his like beautiful childlike nature. And it's going to dip way too far into the type of thing that we're, we see in this episode where yeah. it's like, who is this idiot? Like, why do we care about him? Exactly. Like you have to look out for a Muppet or like overly brooding because that's Zuko's thing. Like right. you can't take that from him. <laughs> right. So it's a, it's a really hard balance to strike. Yeah. We'll see how they do with it. Generally, here in the show, we think they do a great job. Yeah. We want to point it out here. Oh, my God. Do you remember <laughs> when Momo was catching all the spear tips? Uh, As, like, the, Sokka's, the Sokka, like, chopping them up, throwing them up. Sokka learning how to, like, get in on the spear and, like, jack yeah. up the spear. I'm, I was very proud of my boy. There's a lot of good Team Avatar stuff here and, like, right? the gang coming together, working together. Oh, it's so good. It feels good. All right, we've got another major thought here that we've been putting off talking about. <sighs> we just wanted to have like the big moment. Yeah, this is our big moment where we are going to talk about D. Bradley Baker, the voice of Momo, Appa, and pretty much any animal sound in <laughs> Avatar The Last Airbender. He is all sounds. I mean, this guy is a beast. Yes. And we love him. I love him. I did some research on D because I became enamored with him when I realized <laughs> that there was an adult male whose job it is, is to make <laughs> animal sounds and he's that good at it. <laughs> and so D Bradley Baker is the voice of Olmec. Olmec. Who is the like rock faced God of legends of the hidden temple, the Nickelodeon TV yep. show from 1993. <laughs> he also is the voice of Daffy duck in space jam, specifically in space. Jam. That is my, like one of my favorite movies. Same. I'm so happy. And so, you know, now I'm starting to get the context. Oh, this person has been in my life basically my entire Your life. whole life. Yeah. You oh. know, he's had bit roles and recurring roles in many beloved cartoons. Johnny Bravo, Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes. And he's also done animal voices in too many shows to list. <laughs> he is the animal voices guy. Or animal sounds guy. Yeah, you he's say. both. But he's also he's also in Legend of Korra as Councilman Tarlock. That's not an in, animal. In that's a person. One. That's a person. Yeah, he he has some voice roles as well. But of course, he's also Naga, Pabu, Ugi, and any other animal sound in Korra. Yeah. And most recently, um, he's the voice of the hamster Hammond in Overwatch, which is uh, a competitive video game. Ball. Yes, Wrecking Ball. Wrecking Ball. 
where he does like ridiculous hamster sounds. <laughs> He's so good at it. D is excellent. Oh, and deep. we just kind of wanted to take a couple minutes to shout out D Bradley Baker. D, we love you. Hey, Come D. on the podcast. Yeah. We would love to have you. Come hang out. You don't even be have to do animal sounds. Yeah, but... don't even come on the podcast. Just be our friend. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Can... <laughs> but also, if you want to, please come on. <laughs> Can we start a petition? Like, please, D. Bradley Baker, please be friends with us. You're the man. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for your service. And the last thing we want to get to in covering this episode thoroughly is the discussion of Haru and his big hero's choice early in the episode with the mind collapse. It feels like a, a, a man of steel problem where we deal with this like powerful individual that has to like risk themselves in mm. this twist and a sort of parody of ordinary people having to like put themselves in physical risk in order to help when like disaster happens. But the risk that a powered individual undertakes is one of revealing themselves to the wider world. So this this idea of like revelation of power as uh, inherently dangerous and risky, I think was handled really well. And hmm. it just feels it felt like a really grounding moment. It to me, it put Avatar in the sort of superhero genre for just a moment. Right. Yeah. I think that's an amazing point. And I think along with that, when we talk about the Avatar specifically as like a beacon of hope, yeah, there's something important to note about what it means to benders in the world. So when we talk about like the sort of superhero genre-ness of Avatar The Last Airbender, we have this like a world in which non-firebenders are hunted and maligned by the Fire Nation. Mm. Uh, the warden even uses uh, the phrase he, he calls earthbending savagery, Oof. going back to that a- idea of like generative firebending versus like just sort of the primitive elemental bending of other cultures. That the idea that the most hunted bender in the world is willing to not only defy the Fire Nation, but like come out of hiding and actively and publicly work towards ending the war and freeing the world is just this really, it's a really cool moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful concept. Yeah, it feels, it feels a little genre bending for me. Like mm. this felt like a, like a powerful moment that sort of moved past and pushed past traditional fantasy yeah and i think that's again why we love this show so much and what it does so well is it this episode tackled some very serious themes with some real world implications you know imprisonment colonialization yeah the concept of viewing other people as savages like yeah all all these terrible dark adult things and it finds time for levity and it has adult men doing animal sounds (laughs) (laughs) we love you d d and it, you know, and like you said, it it bends through genres while it does it, and yeah. it touches on a lot of different themes throughout a lot of different genres, and we're excited to continue to do that. Heck yeah, yeah. So that's what we have for this episode. Absolutely. Where can people find you? Till next we meet. I am on Twitter Ooh. at Shua himself, one word. Remember, it's Shua himself. Please don't tag that one dude that's just at Shua. I wish I was at Shua. I've I've tried to DM whoever has at Shua Ooh. to get it, and I don't I don't know. He's, he's not active. He doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't know what to do. He's a ghost. So I'm sure himself. The himself tag is a Mark Hamill thing. He's Hamill himself. That's, that's right. Oh, yeah. that's great. Voice of Fire Lord Ozai. <gasps> you are Fire You're Fire Nation, just like me. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and I'm streaming on Twitch more often now at Watch Shua on nice. Twitch. What are you playing right now? 
I'm playing a lot of Spellbreak, and I'm a beast. You're basically a bender, but like, no, you're the avatar because you can bend like lots of elements. Feels pretty good. I think I say that every week. Yeah. Because I still don't play this game, so it's you just genuinely kinda, like, surprising to me sort every of see it Yeah. <laughs> in the background. <laughs> yeah. And I'm playing more Magic the Gathering and having fun with that too. Nice. What about you? Yeah, you can catch me on social media at Quiddy. Q-U-I-D-D-I-E. And I am a TTRPG streamer and writer by trade. So there's a couple different shows you can catch me on. On Wednesdays at 4 p.m., you can catch the uh, YouTube premiere of Dimension 20 side quest, Pirates of Leviathan. All these times are Pacific, by the way. It's super good and super fun. It's a six episode side quest. So it's not a whole lot of episodes to like, catch up on. You can just kind of binge the whole thing. Yeah. I'm also the GM of Pirates of Salt Bay on Tuesday nights over on Saving Throw Show. Uh, you can catch me on Sundays playing Creature Collectors over on Critical Bard's channel. I play Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, the latest D&D module on D&D's Twitch channel with the Roll20 crew at 1 p.m. on Mondays. Uh, you can catch me playing Project Emberfall over on Qtimes. It's a Phoenix Dawn Command game on Tuesday afternoons at 5.30. And Department of Mysteries! On Dragon and Things channel at 1 p.m. Yeah, it's it's Amazing. Harry Potter themed, but, you know, fuck turfs, whatever. <laughs> Yikes. True. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, other than that, we want to shout out our amazing producer, Ryan. We love him. He's great. I love him. You love him more than most. Oh, I was. I was <laughs> <laughs> it's not a competition, but I do love him more. <laughs> In that we are uh, contractually obligated to <laughs> be partners. <laughs> That's the weirdest way to say that he's my husband. What is wrong with me? Your uh, ex-boyfriend, my, wh- whom you married. <laughs> That's not my joke. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to attribute it. Uh-huh. It's fine. It's yours now. Uh-huh. You're good. Uh, he also does all of the music for the show. So thank you for that. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Catch us next time on episode seven, the Winter Solstice Part One. <gasps> Ooh, the it's The Spirit time. World. Oh, yeah. Let's get, get into it. Bye. Bye.